Today we're going to talk a little bit about temptation. I uh, want to give you some thoughts on it to be able to back up some things. And uh, you don't need that information yet. Uh, I won't take it away. Clear that. Go away. There we go. Okay. Um, you don't need that information yet. Now, I will say that um, as we talk about temptation, one of the best things that we can have is a plan. And so I want to share with you a couple of things that, that I've tried to do. Um, not only in regard to, to temptation, but guys, I'm going to give you some things that maybe you can use in the future. Okay? Um, nearly 18 years ago, I proposed to Beth. And I am super, super cheesy. Okay? Anybody who's spent any amount of time with me can affirm that. Those who've been students can say amen and even pass another offering play. I mean, it's that, it's that true. And so uh, we, we go out, I propose, we're, we're, at, we're at my car, blow up these balloons, and she has to pop each of the balloons and put the words on top of my car, and it's, will you marry me? And I get down on my knee and the whole nine yards. And then as she says yes, I give her this hug and I whisper in her ear, I guess you could say I popped the question. Um, <laughs> she knew at the beginning what she was getting into. So I give you that as a precursor, and then I let you know that of the two of us, Beth is the ultra planner. Okay, she is... She is so organized, it makes it, it's just terrible for me. And that's not terrible. It, I try to compare, and I'm nowhere close. So uh, when we knew we were having our second child, okay, we were told from early ultrasounds that uh, we were expecting a girl. We had Melody, and Melody was the first girl on either side of the family, first baby, first grandbaby. So you know she was well-treated as far as the clothing arena and all that. So... We get time to prepare for baby number two, and Beth pulls out the boxes because we knew we were going to have more than one. And so she pulls out the boxes, and she begins to put them in the closet with these little dividers that say zero to three months, three to six months, six to nine months, nine to 12 months, and it's pink. It is so pink, it's not even funny. Now, if you were looking carefully, there was this really tall kid right here that looks nothing like a girl um, because he's not, okay? Now... Up until the week before, we are told we are having a girl. Ultrasound week before, we're having a girl. God was hiding something from us because we didn't, so, and I'll let your minds go wherever you need to on that, okay? God was hiding something from us that was a very clear indicator. So we're ready. We're all pinked out. We're ready to go. And October 16th at 1024 in the morning, out comes a very special surprise. <laughs> Now, Beth's mom is across the room, maybe about where the door is, and out comes the baby, flip the baby over. It's a boy! Stop picking her like that. She's been through enough. Now, granted, okay, granted, that is a reasonable response for me, but I said, I'm not picking. It's a boy! And the little, little ICU, uh, NICU nurse comes over and goes, I don't know how you missed that. You know, so <laughs> Beth's plan was then radically altered, Okay. All the baby girl stuff got put away, and uh, fortunately we were serving in a church at that time too, and they said, let's have a surprise take-back shower. And so we got a lot of greens and blues and that kind of stuff, and not that it matters, you know, so there's those, the, those plans. And so nearly 17 years of marriage later, I've learned that to, to one of the ways to communicate love to my bride is to show planning and detail and and those kinds of things. It can't just be haphazard. So, Valentine's Day occurred not too long ago. If you've missed it, um, you're probably in trouble, guys. Uh, just saying. And so, we start the evening, 
uh, just going to go to dinner and, and hang out and do that kind of stuff. Well, I planned ahead of time that I wanted to tell her how I felt about her. So I created all these uh, pictures in my phone and got all these emails prepared ahead of time so I could just randomly send them whenever I wanted to. So the first one I sent her was, I love you two pieces. Yeah. And uh, she's like, did you plan this? And, and you can't see it in this picture yet. Maybe you can. But she's like, where are you getting all this? And so I said, you're the only star in my Milky Way and those kinds of things. Our love is as classic as M&M's. Uh, there you go. Thank you very much. Um, when I'm with you, I feel like 100 grand. Um, even when we're in a time crunch, you always look put together. Nothing but your love satisfies. Uh, I love you more than Whoppers, which is her favorite. Uh, we go together like Twix. So you get the idea. And then there was the last one that was a Starbucks gift card. I'm a buck. You're a star. Together we are. And you get the idea. So I told you ahead of time I'm cheesy. Now, you would think after all of that, you go, well, some of those pictures look the same. You know, the background looks kind of, I don't know, gene-like. Well, it was because I was sitting in my van uh, right after I got home taking pictures with my phone on top of my leg. And what I had done was taken all of those candy candy things and a couple of others and put them in a bag for later. But all she was hearing was, this is how much I love you and this is how much I care about you. And I tell you all of that to tell you I had a plan. I had a plan to communicate. Is this cheesy as all get out? Sure it is. Um, there was one, there was a, a York peppermint patty that was like, um, I would like to take you to New York, but you know. So you work with what you've got and that's all I had. So um, anyway, but all of that to get us to the point when we start talking about temptation, we also have to have a plan. And we have to be just as methodical, just as intentional, and just as purposeful in our dealing with temptation. So we're going to look at several verses today uh, that talk about how to plan to fight temptation. The first one is, as we're, as we're kind of looking at this, I want you to go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. James chapter 1. Go to Revelation and hang a left. James chapter 1. Okay. Now, as we're getting to how we understand what temptation is, I think the first thing we need to really look at is how do we, how do we define sin? And sin is this moral failure on our part to obey God in action, in word, in thought, and yes, even in our nature. The fact that we have this great love of God that has transformed us and yet we will still choose to willingly sin against him, that's who we are. And, and, and so it demonstrates itself in our actions and in our words and in our thought life. So let's see how this plays out. James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully, fully grown, brings forth death. Did you catch the progression there? It starts off with hitting people where they are, knowing what will tempt them, and tempting them with a desire that may not tempt me. What tempts you may not tempt the person sitting right next to you, even though you may live in the same house. What tempts you may not tempt half the people in the room, because you're male and they're female. 
The point is it starts where we are. And then that temptation is, is kind of tailored. And then once we respond to that temptation in a negative way, that becomes sin that brings death. And so not that that's a big surprise, except that we want to equate temptation and sin, and they're not the same thing. Just because one is tempted doesn't mean that they've sinned. It's when they act on that sin or act on that temptation that it becomes sin. So how do we get there? How do we understand what do we do next? Well, we have to understand what temptation looks like. It shows up in three specific categories. Look with me, um, if you will, to 1 John chapter 2. Go to the right just a little bit. 1 John chapter 2. If you end up in the map, she went too far. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Look again at verse 16. Three big areas. It says, The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. Those three areas, if we'll look at our own sin life, pretty much sum it up. It'll fall into one of those three categories. It'll fall into one of those three areas in which we will succumb to sin. It'll fall into the desires of the flesh, the appetites of the flesh. That could be lust. That could be a number of things that are, that are those kinds of desires. It could talk about the desires of the eyes. It could talk about pride and possessions. And all of those things, if we recognize those ahead of time we can begin to build our plan to overcome temptation. Now, let's see if that plays out. Go, if you will, all the way to the left. Go to the table of contents, turn right three pages, and go to Genesis chapter 3. A lot of scripture today, and I make no apology for that. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, as you get there, this is the story of the fall. Now, I want you to catch a couple of things that are happening here, and then see if we can maybe identify a few pieces with which to, to fight our battle. Okay? Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. There's a lot going on there. First of all, we have this 
uh, interchange between Eve and this talking serpent? Been to Narnia lately? I don't know about you, but a talking serpent would kind of freak me out. And, and there's no comment on that. And there's, there's reasons behind that. But there's no comment on that. And then he starts off with this question. Did God say not to eat of any of the trees in the garden? <coughs> What's he implying? What's the serpent in this story? What's he implying about God? He's lying. God lied to you. He doesn't have your best interests. He's keeping that from you. He lied to you. You'll not surely die. You'll be like him. Not that what you've had isn't good enough, but maybe you want just a little bit more. Maybe you want something just a little bit better. Maybe you want a, a greater impression of this. And so she considers it. She thinks through it. But he gives her some other lies. He says, no harm will come to you. You'll not die. In fact, it's good for you. Look at it. It's pretty. It's shiny. How many times have we been distracted by a pretty and a shiny? Can I get a witness? <laughs> shiny. And we, my precious. And, and we kind of, okay, you get the idea uh, that that's how we come to this sin. It all, it's not because it's ugly and grotesque. We look at it and we go, whew. I need some whatever that is. And we follow it. And so the, the temptation gives these, these lies, these, these partial truths maybe. And then Eve takes the fruit. And Adam, who's right there with him. See, here's what I think is happening. I think Adam wants to see. He's our first scientist. He's, like, he's the first experimenter. So he's going to wait and see what happens to her. And so he's right there. I mean, he's like right there. And she's like, hmm, an apple or whatever. I think it was a passion fruit, actually. Um, go with me there. Okay, now, she takes the fruit, and Adam's kind of watching. She doesn't die. I don't know if they had an experience of that. We don't know that. And then she goes, here. She's not dead yet. I'll tell oh, yeah. And then so we see this back and forth, and I think we see why God holds Adam accountable. Eve was deceived. Adam willingly took. And then they did the funniest thing I think I've ever seen in Scripture. They played hide-and-seek with God. I'm not thinking that's going to work really well when we have Scripture that tells us, where can I go from your presence? Nowhere. And they're like, we're hiding. God can't see us. Well, I think already we see the effect that sin has on the mind. That all of a sudden, what was okay thought now becomes they're trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. First of all, fig leaves are so last season. <laughs> Second of all, I'm not thinking they're very productive. And so they're hiding behind the tree, and God comes in the garden, and we see the, the, the exchange that goes through, and it's like, I'm hiding from God. You can't see me. And God's like, Adam, where are you? I really, really, really don't think in the power and might of God that he's confused as their location. I don't think he's going, I've lost my prized creation. Wherever have they gone? I don't think that's the case. But he's given them an opportunity to do something. He's given them an opportunity to come out of the shadows, if you will, and confess. He doesn't need to know where they are. He already knows where they are. 
He doesn't need for them to tell him what happened. He already knows what happened. And so we have this exchange. And again, their minds have been changed about the, the power of what has happened. And all of a sudden, they're looking at God going, I really can't hide from you. I can't. But notice what happens as we walk through this. They, they yield to the temptation. They're hiding from God. And then they're wondering, what happens next? And the consequence remains. God is still faithful. God still cares for them. God still provides their needs. And there's a consequence that remains. They're booted out. And the rest of us have had to deal with it ever since. And so I think through this, and I think, you know, if, if that's true for them, and it is now true for me, I would love to know that there is somebody who can help me with temptation, that it is not a futile effort, that I can't just do this on my own. Well, let me give you a word, hope. Let's flip again to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4. And as you get to Hebrews chapter 4, I think you're going to see a word of hope that is very, very helpful. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need catch that we have a high priest who can identify what he was tempted in in every arena that we are and yet without sin i don't think he was tempted with every sin that we're tempted with some of those things that tempt us wouldn't tempt him just five more minutes on my social media. I don't think Jesus would be tempted by that. I don't think Jesus would be tempted by another hour spent on Pinterest. Just don't. Now, he may have had some stuff up on his board, but I don't think he would have been tempted by it. Ladies, if you're with me on that, I, I understand. You know, I don't think he would have spent another hour on uh, a modern warfare game. Not that anything wrong with it. <laughs> some of you are like eh, wait a minute don't start talking about that stuff no I don't I don't think he would be tempted by those things but if we go back to 1 John I think he was tempted in three areas just like we are he was tempted with his appetite he was tempted with the, the, the lust of the flesh he was tempted with pride of possessions he was tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin and what I want to offer you is not so much that though he is there I want to offer you this last part where it says that let us then with confidence draw near not brashness confidence that we can come out of hiding like Adam and Eve instead of hiding behind a tree or whatever that we can come into the open and say we have sinned it's not pretty and to quote the great Brittany oops we've done it again and we find ourselves in the same place, and yet only you can fix this. And so I come with the confidence that you are faithful. Again, not brashness, confidence. Let's see if that holds true. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Let's see if he really was tempted like we are. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. 
Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Luke 4 will record that he'll lead him to an opportune time. And so we see this back and forth exchange. We see uh, some things that I think we can build into our planning, our process, our thought on how to, con- how to combat temptation. One of the things that we see is he was tired and he was hungry. Think about the times when you are tempted most. It is not when you are on your A game. It is when you are worn out. It's when it's the end of a long week where you worked 80 hours and it's Tuesday. Okay, and you're you're exhausted, and then there was that conversation between somebody you care about and you, and you're already on edge, and then whoop, there's the temptation. And we find ourselves willing to crumble because we're tired. And so we have to understand that one of the things that helps us combat this is understand that when we're tired, we are weak. And we are susceptible to, to temptation. And so in those times, those are the times when we need to be praying the most, when we want to pray the least. You ever had those times when it's like, I just don't want to pray today or this week. I'll pray tomorrow. And then you wake up and five different things go wrong before the kids get out of bed. Or maybe because the kids got out of bed. Um, and it's Saturday and it's 4.30 in the morning and you wonder what demon is roaming through your home. Um, and it's not your five-year-old. Um, she's not a demon. Um, all the time. <laughs> now, I say that, but you get the idea. And so when we're tired, we know that we have to do that. Now notice, he offers these three things. The first thing he says is, you're hungry, turn, turn this into bread. Well, that sounds a whole lot like sinful appetites. There's one. Okay. Uh, no. And he goes to the next one, takes him up to the top of the temple, which if you've seen pictures of the Dome of the Rock, uh, the, the temple itself would have been three times taller than that. So we're not talking any high, you know, any high thing. We're talking high thing. He says, toss yourself down, the angels will catch you. And the enemy uses scripture and twists it to his own uses because the two things he quotes are straight from Psalm 91. And as, as he wrestles with that, he goes, no, not going to do that. And then takes him up to this high mountain that some scholars say is in Jericho, which is kind of fun because you look out from that point and there's nothing to see. If you're a Star Wars fan, it looks like Tatooine. I mean, Jericho is just as desert as it can be except for the city itself. 
The city itself is like this literal oasis in the middle of nothingness. But it was a trade route, and it had lush vegetation, it had all these things, but it also had access to a lot of different kingdoms. And so some scholars who have kind of studied that come back to this point and say, you know, this is likely what he was offered. I don't know about you, but I always struggle with, can he do that? I mean, can he offer that? He's the king of the universe. Can he do that? Can he say, hey, let's have these, let's have these countries, have these nations, have these authorities? Yeah, he can. Because until uh, we see the, the, the final wrapping up of all of this, when Jesus comes back, he's the prince of the power of this age. He has access and control over authorities. And those, Ephesians 6 gives us this picture. We wrestle not against flesh and blood against all this other stuff. And so he could have offered that, but every single one of those would have thwarted the ultimate plan of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and everything that came after. So he could have made rocks into bread. He could have uh, jumped off the temple. He could have had all of that. And quite frankly, it, for a Texan looking at what was, what was possibly offered, it wasn't that great. Just, it's not that pretty. There's a small little section. You're thinking everything's bigger in Texas. And I looked at it and I went, that's impressive. I'm from Texas. But it wasn't the spot. It was the power that went with it. And so I looked at all those things, and he answers every time. But how does he answer? Did you notice? As it is written. Any guesses where? Deuteronomy. Exactly right. One of three books that most Christians avoid. Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Lamentations. For a some obvious reasons, if you know anything about those. Deuteronomy, one of the books of the law, uh, and some of the things that go on. Le Leviticus, nothing but law, all the time. Um, and then Lamentations, because it's crying over Israel and nobody wants to be sad. And so we skip that stuff, and yet right in the middle of it, Christ says, I don't think so. In fact, no, and let me back it up with something that uh, I had somebody write a couple of thousand years ago from Deuteronomy. I think there's something we can hold on to there as we deal with our own battle with temptation that if we know we're tempted in an area that we come to scripture and we allow it to be seeped into our hearts for me when I was a young guy um, take that however you need to I was a teenager and I really struggled with anger so I had to meditate on verses about anger so that when I started feeling that boiling up in me I didn't take it out on somebody um, the wrath of men does not produce the righteousness of God is the one that rings in my head a lot. And I had to pass that on to my boys because, well, they're brothers and they deal with each other and sometimes they deal with each other's siblings. And sometimes, just short of all hell breaking loose, happens with, within a home. And if I'm saying stuff that's new to you, um, just wait, it'll come. Those of you who have more than two already know this to be true. And I'm seeing that from my families who have three or four in their homes. So it's true. And you're like, I have no idea what you're talking it's coming it's coming and so we've used those kinds of things hey if you're going to have stuff with anger here's the stuff you're going to have to write down until your hand falls off he still doesn't like that verse because his hand starts hurting but the idea is you begin to store in your heart lots of scripture so that when situations come up that you do know you're tempted in those situations are then confronted with scripture and you're able to stand on something other than yourself now, we look at temptation, and the, one of these verses that we like to use a lot, that 
God will not give us more than we can bear, and we like using that. In context, it's dealing with temptation. Every other thing, we're not reading it right, and I'll just quietly leave that alone. But when we're talking about this, it says God will give us a way of escape. He will not give us more than we can bear. He's talking directly about temptation. When you are tempted, God will provide a way of escape. He will not give you more than you can handle. Now, let's not apply that to suffering because it wasn't meant to be applied there. It was meant to be applied to, to temptation. And so if the way of escape is already present and we find ourselves in a tempting situation, we always have two choices. Yield or run away. Anything else is going to end up going here usually. And so as we, as we take that in, one of the ways that we run away is that we stand firm with the scripture God has given us and we store it in our hearts, we store it in our minds so that Psalm 119 really does make sense in verse 11 where it says, your word I've treasured hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Just before that though, it says, how can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? And so that's exactly what Jesus demonstrates in Matthew chapter four is that he's keeping his way according to his, well, his own word, but... We can do the same. So he overcomes with scripture. He recognizes the temptation. And I think when we begin to see the pattern that when we're tired, we're more susceptible. When temptation comes, we have a way out and we have to be able to stand against it. If we have nothing in the arsenal with which to fight back, we're setting ourselves up for failure. But if we fortify the city before there's a battle, then when temptation comes, we're able to recognize it and stand against it. So what does that look like? We begin to, to trust the Spirit of God. We begin to learn and read the Scripture. We begin to, to place it so much in our lives that when we are tempted, we're able to confront it. We know what's coming before temptation rears its ugly head, and then we, we make a plan to get out of it. If you struggle in an area that, let's say you struggle in lust, don't put yourself in a situation where that's even a possibility. If you, if you struggle with anything, I'm, I'm trying to keep specifics to a minimum, but if there's things that you struggle with and you know there are things that, that precede it, stay away. It's like the person who's trying to give up smoking who goes to a restaurant that allows smoking. <sighs> that secondhand smoke is really good. It's twice as bad. But I'm just getting some of it. I'm just there. No, you're not. You're putting yourself in the situation where like all these other people are lighting up and I want to light up too. It could be applied in a bunch of different ways. But if you set the guards in place, you have a plan. Now, last thing I want to ask or share with you is what happens if you've already succumbed to temptation? You've already failed. You've already yielded. You've already fallen face down in your own stuff and you find yourself going... This is all well and good, but where were you yesterday? Or this morning, or last week? I've fallen. Don't fill that in with I can't get up. I've fallen, and, and I'm looking at this, and I'm a failure. To quote the great Brittany, oops, I did it again. And I don't know what to do. One more scripture, and then we'll finish. First John chapter 1 1 John chapter 1 
some very practical advice. First John chapter one, <coughs> starting in verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Verse 9 says if we confess it, that word means to agree with God that it's there. It's not informing God. It doesn't say if we inform God of our sin, then he'll, he already knows. If we look at Psalm 51, after David is caught in his sin with Bathsheba, Nathan calls him to the, to the mat, and he begins to say things like, I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned. You skip down a little bit, and he says, cleanse me with hyssop, purify me, and I will be clean. And he says, create in me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit within me. And all of these things going back to this penitence, this cleanse me. And so if we follow the advice in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we come to this point where we say, I agree with you, God, that I have sinned. I agree with you, God, that not only have I yielded to, to temptation, but I, I made that master over me in some way, form, or fashion. And so I agree with you that it's there. I ask that you, in your faithfulness, because I've been faithless, that you would cleanse me, that you would make me right with you, that you would indeed declare me righteous, that you would forgive me. That word means to cancel the debt. And yes, that's part of what's offered at salvation, but it's also offered on a daily basis so that when we sin, we confess it. He is faithful. He is just. He is righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness maybe. That's not what it says. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Dear friends, if you've fallen and you feel like a failure, please hear that we serve a God of grace and mercy. He does forgive. He does invite us to come into his throne room with confidence. Not confidence in our sin, but confidence in our relationship so that he can cleanse us and he can forgive us and he can make us right. There are consequences that will remain and that's important to remember, but that does not mean that we cannot be forgiven or that we are not forgiven. Just the opposite is true. And so I want to encourage you, build a plan Identify how temptation works. Identify what it looks like in your own life and build a plan to go against it. And then from there, be intentional and purposeful about avoiding situations in which you can be tempted so that you can live a life that is pleasing and victorious. And should you fail, should you stumble again, may you be found in His grace. Let's pray together. Father God, we are a broken people. And we know that in and of ourselves, we are weak and powerless to do anything to help our own cause. 
but you are mighty. You are mighty to save. You are mighty to forgive. You are mighty to bestow grace and mercy. And so today we come and we want to take a moment to, to tell you what we want to do, but more than that, to hear what you want us to do. Father, for those who know they are defeated, I pray that they would understand your faithfulness and your forgiveness. Strengthen them as only you can. For those who may have the, the line of, but you don't know what I've done, Father, we acknowledge you indeed do know what we've done. And you call us out of hiding so that you can restore us. Thank you for your great, great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray.